And if you would, open your Bible to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 47 to 57, finishing this chapter, a chapter that has really revolved around one miracle. And we're going to begin by reading the passage. In fact, we're going to read, reaching back to verse 45. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. It might have seemed the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders was merely theological, that it was a purely religious dispute. But what we find here is that it was actually political. Jesus posed a threat to the religious establishment, and they wanted him dead. And though their motivation was primarily political, they cloaked it in religion to disguise their true intent. They're going to have him on the hook for blasphemy, but in reality, their motivation is entirely political. And what's amazing is we are seeing the exact opposite in our day. In our day, our political leaders would have us believe their primary concern is political. But in reality, it's religious. It's just cloaked in politics. And so though it might seem to others that we as a local church, for example, are becoming more political, we aren't. The reverse is true. Our government is becoming more religious. And we might ask this question, 
why this happens. Why is it so difficult to keep religion and politics separate? And it's this, because both are intensely ideological. They're shaped by one's worldview. And one's worldview is always shaped by their religion, even in the case of the atheist. And so with this passage, we pull the curtain back on a group of politicians and get to eavesdrop on their politically motivated scheme as they conspire to kill Jesus, the Lord of glory. And really what we see in these verses is an incredible contrast to everything leading up to this point. We just witnessed a marvelous display of the glory of God, of the glory of Christ, of the love of Christ. We witnessed Jesus raise a man who had been dead four days. We saw the tender way he cared for Mary and Martha. We saw a stunning display of his own emotion, both his deity and his humanity side by side. And the only, the only fitting response to that is to do what? It's to believe in him. It's to confess him as Lord. To believe he was sent from the Father. And yet what we see here is the polar opposite. Hatred. Selfish ambition, self-preservation, murder, hypocrisy, and evil intent. The contrast couldn't be more glaring. But in the midst of all of this, here's what we see. And here's what we're going to see even today. That even when man is at his absolute worst... God is in sovereign control of everything. Sovereignly accomplishing his goodwill and purpose such that what man intends for evil, God intends for good. And so let's listen in on this conspiracy. If you're taking notes, jot this down, the problem. The problem, this begins in verse 47. It says, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Now, you have to understand that though under Roman rule, Israel enjoyed a measure of self-governing autonomy, and its ruling body was the Sanhedrin. In fact, the word rendered council here in our verse is actually the, the Greek word that just means Sanhedrin. That's where we get the word Sanhedrin from. The Sanhedrin was the highest judicial body in Israel. And under Roman rule, governed all internal affairs. It was the judiciary. It functioned as the legislative body. And through the high priest, also functioned as the executive. It was effectively the, the White House, the Senate, and the judiciary all bound up in one. No separation of powers. And it largely consisted of chief priests Priests who were selected from the family of the high priest, and nearly all priests were Sadducees, who were an intensely liberal bunch, denying the resurrection, for example, denying that angels exist, and so on. But it also consisted of a small group of Pharisees, and these Pharisees functioned as the influential minority, most of them being scribes and committed to the law. 
and the positions that remained over and above the chief priests who made up the majority and the influential minority made up of the Pharisees were either elders or landed aristocrats who were noble by birth and members of the upper class. And then there was the high priest who was the highest ranking member of the Sanhedrin and was appointed by Rome. And so you ask, what's the impetus for this council? Well, you know, because back in verse 46, you see, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And so there were some there who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, and instead of believing on Christ, they went to the Pharisees and reported to them what Jesus had done. An act of unbelief, an act of hostility toward Jesus. And the Pharisees then took that news and brought it to the high priest potentially, and they ordered a council. It was the raising of Lazarus that instigated this. Next half of verse 47, and we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Now, what do you notice about that? They don't deny that he's doing what he's doing. They don't deny his miracles at all. They don't question whether or not Lazarus was raised from the dead. They don't question whether or not he had performed many signs to this point. That was not a matter up for debate. And they weren't about to deal honestly with the significance of them. Had they considered the significance of his signs, they would have known he was the one sent from the Father, the one that was foretold in the Old Testament, and they would have believed on him. Instead, they're concerned about their popularity and about his popularity because as his popularity increased, theirs decreased. And that made him a threat to them and their enterprise. And that comes out in verse 48. It says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." And there's obviously a degree of hyperbole in that, that all men will believe in him. There were certainly enough who had rejected him already. But nevertheless, they were threatened by him. And on the surface of it, this comes off as a genuine concern for the people and nation. It isn't. It's bathed in selfish ambition and self-preservation. They're concerned about protecting their positions of power and prestige. And though that isn't necessarily obvious here, it is in the high priest's response in verse 50. Look at it. He says there, nor do you take into account, note that it is expedient. You might think for who? For the nation? No, for you. For the chief priests, for the Sanhedrin that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. This is about what is beneficial, advantageous, and expedient for the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. Their concern for their place and their nation is really a, a concern for their own status. They're not concerned for the people. They're concerned about protecting their enterprise. And it was a uh, an enterprise that earned for them lots of resources, lots of money. 
And so this was clearly an issue of guarding their hide. John Calvin picks up on this and he writes, quote, they cloak their wickedness by a plausible guise. Their zeal for the public good. The fear that chiefly distressed them was that their tyranny would be destroyed. But they pretend to be anxious about the temple and the worship of God, about the name of the nation, and about the condition of the people, unquote. This is a, a political concern cloaked in religion. You'll note they say there, our place. And when they say our place there, they're almost certainly referring to the temple, which wasn't just symbolic of Israel's identity and existence. It was inseparable from their role as its governing body. And so their fear is that everyone will believe in Jesus, that a revolution will ensue, and that Rome will come and destroy both the temple and the nation, which is really ironic for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus isn't a political revolutionary. The political component of his reign will come later when his kingdom comes. But he has no political motives at this juncture. And two, Rome was going to come and destroy their temple and the nation. But not because many came to believe in him, because they rejected him. The irony in John's gospel is everywhere, and it is right here. As this council convenes a, a means by which they think they're going to be able to spare their status by sparing the nation, when in reality, they're just putting the nail in the coffin. And you need to catch the pathos of this. They are coming unglued in this moment. The raising of Lazarus was the last straw. They are saying, we need to do something, and we need to do something now. This man is going to bring about our ruin. If all Israel goes after him, we'll be shut out with no one to fleece, control, and manipulate. It's insidious. And really, you know what this is? This is a Psalm 2 moment. Just listen. Opening three verses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But what's noteworthy about this is that this isn't the nations. This is the nation Israel the covenant people of God. And they are devising a vain thing against God and against his Christ, against the very one they were supposed to be anticipating. Which just puts John 111 on display. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And when Peter quotes Psalm 2 in Acts 4, he includes Israel. Listen, he says this, truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. 
Israel was a part of the nations that were devising a vain thing against Christ and against God. And this is that on display. We are on the inner room of that. And really what's happening here in John 11 is constantly happening all over the world. Kings and rulers and politicians continually come together to devise vain things, all with a view toward protecting their power, if not increasing it. All of it being hostility toward God, an attempt to throw off the authority of God. And what's God's response, Psalm 2? He laughs. He laughs. He scoffs at them. He mocks them because they devise what is truly a vain thing as they attempt to throw off his authority. He knows their day is coming and he knows he will execute the justice of that day. And we need to be reminded of that. Because in our day, we would be so prone to fret if we didn't keep at least one eye on the sovereignty of God. With so much happening in our world, so many vain things being devised, things that are counter to the word of God and the righteousness of God, we would be prone to fear. And may even be experiencing fear right now in this moment as we consider all that might be on the horizon, but we need to remember that this is our Father's world. And he nullifies the counsel of the nations and frustrates the plans of the people, Psalm 33.10. And we get a glorious example of that in verses 49 and following. That was the problem. If you're taking notes, jot down second, the prophecy the prophecy, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. And this scene is just as you would expect it. Caiaphas was no doubt a master politician and the longest standing high priest in the first century. He was high priest for 18 years from AD 18 to 36. And to put that in perspective, the three high priests prior to him, as well as his successor, lasted about a year. And he was also the son-in-law of Annas, who was high priest from 86 to 15, and who continued to exercise quite a bit of influence over the Sanhedrin. In fact, we'll see Annas come up in John 18. And so to have that kind of staying power demanded some cunning. You don't get to the top by being honest. You get there by being double-tongued, by politicking and manipulating. He's a master of political posturing. And so Caiaphas calmly and cunningly chimes in and says, you know nothing at all. As if to say, you don't have the foggiest idea what you are talking about. You are utterly incompetent. You couldn't politic your way out of a paper bag. And then he says this, and you need to pay attention, verse 50, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. What does that mean? Kill Jesus 
and, and the threat. Kill Jesus and end any possibility of a revolt. Kill Jesus and the nation lives on. Look what he says there. Nor do you take into account. This was an error in calculation. He says that it is expedient for you. That it is advantageous. And he says that one man die for the people where four is the language of substitution. And the whole nation not perish. I mean, that's incredible. He is proclaiming the gospel. He is declaring the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Does he realize what he's saying? No. Verse 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, which is literally from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, make no mistake about it. Caiaphas is no puppet. He said exactly what he wanted to say, and he did so by his own volition. The issue is he had one meaning, God had another. He spoke out of political expediency but God spoke to him or through him prophetically and announced the atoning work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people. Jesus would die for the nation, but not for the nation only. He would die for the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, who are they? It's the Gentiles. How do you know that? Turn back to John 10, 16. Jesus has already made it clear that his mission and ministry has a broader focus than Israel. And he declares in John 10, 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and not of this fold is not of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, that's the effectual call, and they will become one flock with one shepherd." some from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so you have two folds. You have the, the fold of Israel, and you have the fold of the world made up of the Gentiles, and Christ is going to call some out of this fold and some out of this fold and bring them together as one people under one shepherd. And this is consistent Throughout John's gospel, there's the declaration of John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's gospel has made it clear he is the savior of the world. And it's even alluded to in the high priestly prayer of Jesus where he says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Yes, made up of Jew and Gentile, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, John 17, 20 and 21. And so Caiaphas unwittingly declares the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He was speaking at a political expediency, and yet God was speaking through him prophetically. And you need to understand that even here, in this reference to the children of God that are scattered abroad, 
There is a note of sovereign election and definite atonement. Because even here, those who have not yet come to believe in Christ are referred to as children of God. They are children even before they come to Christ by way of their foreordained purpose. And so even here, you have a note of sovereign election and definite atonement. And that is because Jesus is the good shepherd. And he lays down his life for his sheep. He knows his own, and his own know him, and they hear his voice and follow him. And he gives eternal life to them. And so again, Caiaphas announces the plot to have Jesus killed and unwittingly prophesies gospel truth. Now what you have here is an amazing example of what theologians call compatibilism. That absolute divine sovereignty and human responsibility are completely compatible. That God is completely sovereign over all of the events of human history, and yet man is entirely responsible and accountable for every thought, word, and deed. In fact, Spurgeon was asked this, whether he could reconcile these two truths. And he said this, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are completely compatible and they are good, harmonious friends. God is totally sovereign and man is completely responsible. And even this ought to be a great comfort to us that as Moral decay continually sets in around us, and as our government increasingly propagates evil, God is in total control and is providentially orchestrating everything. As everything moves toward the glorious climactic return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as things grow progressively worse, you might be tempted to think, well, God is sovereign, so we might as well just... Let God be sovereign, and as he sovereignly works providentially in the world, and as things get worse and worse, we should just step back and let that happen. Just chalk everything up to the sovereignty of God. And might not take clear, firm stands. Or else be found as striving against his sovereignty, but that would be a poor application of this truth. Yes, God is sovereign, and yes, we are fully responsible. So regardless of what God is doing in the world, his sovereignty never undermines our responsibility. We are called to be faithful no matter what. And I would say that no doubt in this time, there are those who, who didn't stand chalking it up to the sovereignty of God and said, well, God is sovereign, so this is what God is doing in the world, and so we're not going to take a stand on this. Again, that would be a poor application of the sovereignty of God. It's his sovereignty that gives us confidence to stand. It's his sovereignty that gives us confidence to be faithful, even when it's difficult. And so far from making us passive, the sovereignty of God should make us confidently active in every sphere of life, from daily choices we make to even evangelizing the lost. We can proclaim the gospel with full confidence knowing that God never lets his word return void. It either brings judgment or it brings blessing. 
And so that's the prophecy. Caiaphas prophesies the death of Jesus or declares it, and God prophesies through him wonderful, glorious gospel truth. Now, third, if you're taking notes, jot this down, the plan. The plan, and this comes out in verse 53, and this is somewhat brief. It says there, so from that day, they planned together to kill him. It's important to note that this was the real trial. There's going to be a, a sham mock trial later on, but this is the real trial. They've determined that Jesus is guilty, and what happens later is just an effort to secure what they need to be able to, to get the justification in place to go about pursuing his death. And so this is really them determining what it is they're going to do. This is their settled, predetermined plan, and everything that comes later is nothing but a sham. And so even when Jesus declares himself to be the fulfillment of Daniel 7.13, declaring himself to be the Christ, the Son of God, and Caiaphas puts on a show and tears his robes as though some awful thing has taken place, all of it is hypocrisy. It was exactly what he wanted and brought great delight to his soul because in that proclamation he had everything he thought he needed to put Jesus to death. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And so Jesus here withdraws from publicly walking among the Jews. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. It was near, but it had not yet come. And we're close. We can be as close as a week and a half from his crucifixion at this point in time. And we know it's close because the very next verse tells us it's close. And so if you're taking notes, jot down fourth, the purification. The purification, verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near. This is our Lord's final Passover. He will be the Passover lamb. And it says there, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And so the Passover is near, and the Jews are flocking to, to Jerusalem to purify themselves for the feast, which is another expression of irony, and later hypocrisy. Because while the religious leaders are plotting to put Jesus to death, the people are found here to be purifying themselves for the feast and will later join the chorus calling on Jesus to be crucified. And so this purification is dead orthodoxy. Nothing more than fruitless religiosity. And yet there's some enthusiasm in them. Look at verse 56. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all. I mean, there was quite a buzz. The word about the resurrection of Lazarus had created quite a stir. In fact, by John 12, verse 10, the chief priests are intending to put Lazarus to death. They want to kill the evidence. And so this miracle was absolutely epic. 
And really what elevated the buzz was the people knew the leaders wanted Jesus dead. This comes out in verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they may seize him. How the word got out, we don't know. Could have been a a purposeful leaking of the information. It could have been Nicodemus or someone like that on the inside who was more sympathetic to Jesus. But the word had gotten out. Orders were in place. And if they had known where he was, they were to report it that they might seize him. Pop quiz. Would they have had to carry out that order? Were they under obligation to carry out that governmental order? No. That's an unjust order. But it's this matter of purification that demands our attention. Because though they are manifesting outward obedience to the law, and though they're somewhat enthusiastic about Christ, the vast majority of them are no more right with God than the religious leaders. They're all in the same boat. Whether they had positive feelings toward Jesus or whether they hated him, in both cases, they were in the same place, dead in their trespasses and sins. And this points back to the teaching of John 3, that unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus spoke those words to one of the most religious people in all Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was the teacher of Israel, fastidious in his rigid law-keeping. He was devout and even believed that Jesus had come from God, and yet all of that counted for nothing. Unless you be born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so you could be born into a, a Christian home, never miss a day of church, be baptized, be a dedicated member of the body of Christ, read your Bible every day, serve in all kinds of ways giving all the outward appearance that you know the Lord Jesus Christ and be no more saved than a Christ-rejecting Pharisee. And that's because mere external religion never saved anyone. You must be born again, born from above. This requires a new birth, second birth, spiritual birth, where the heart of stone you came into this world with is removed. And where you receive a heart of flesh that lives and beats for God. Whereby all outward manifestations of obedience and religion are a true reflection of your heart. And where you actually bear fruit for God. And though, like the wind, the Spirit blows where he wills, he always acts in accord with the proclamation of the gospel. And the gospel is this, bad news first, all of us come into this world dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually blind, unable to see, unable to hear, and we live after our own glory, desires, and wants. We are the master of our own life. We do what we want. We do it when we want. We do it how we want. Any submission that takes place in our life to anyone else is oftentimes born out of nothing more than our own benefit. 
And so we live a life of sin and rebellion against God. And if we stay in that condition, we will die and enter into eternal judgment where we will ultimately be judged for all the sin we ever committed against the holiness of God. That's the bad news. The good news. God the Father sent his son and he sent him to deliver his people from their sin. He came born as a virgin, lived under the law, walked in obedience, even as we sung this morning, never sinned at any point, perfect in thought, perfect in word, perfect in deed. He was committed to the Father's glory, committed to the Father's mission, committed to the Father's purpose, and in doing so, he found himself in the very conflict that we're witnessing right here on the pages of Scripture, where the religious establishment and system that was in place rejected him, deemed him an imposter, and as we've seen, wanted to put him to death because they threatened their enterprise. And so he went to the cross. They believed they were killing a criminal. He was actually dying as the perfect son of God, the Lord of glory. And on that cross, he suffered under the wrath of God for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name. He swallowed it up in full. He died on that cross, gave up his spirit, was buried and went into the grave, and on the third day rose again. Now he is seated at the right hand of God. And if you would believe on him, turning from your sin and looking to him, trusting in his finished work on that cross, looking to him for the forgiveness of your sin and a righteousness, not your own, because it's his righteousness, God will declare you righteous, will clothe you in the very righteousness of Christ, will adopt you into his family, reconcile you to himself, your sin will be entirely forgiven, and you will have the certain hope that even if you leave this building and give up your last breath, you will immediately enter his presence and know eternal joy. And so I would urge you this day to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, confess him as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Believe on him and be reconciled to God through him. It should be apparent at this point that this was a politically motivated plan where we see the depravity of man at its worst as the religious leaders of Israel conspire to kill the perfect and holy son of God. And the comfort to us is this, that even here, even when man is at his worst, God is sovereignly superintending all things and moving everything toward a glorious end. And so take courage, my beloved. Our God reigns. He is sovereign over all things. And it's his counsel that stands forever. Let's pray. Well, Father, we marvel at this portion of Scripture. We know that 
to have this portion of Scripture is a testimony of the inspiration of Scripture, the work of the Spirit in revealing the truth infallibly to John, that we could peer in on this discussion, this conspiracy to put our Lord to death. And Father, we pray that what we've seen here, knowing that in the midst of the depravity of man, man at his worst, we see you at your finest, sovereignly working over all things, providentially bringing about your sovereign purpose. And Lord, as everything around us grows ever more uncertain and chaotic, may you impress this moment upon our hearts. And may we not fret, but take courage. We know that in the end, you win. And we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.